Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. How you doing? I'm good. How's it going with you? It's been a good week. I got a lot of riding in. Always a good week. What'd you do? Well, you know, I'm at the point now where I, I don't drive my car. I own a car. And it sits in the driveway and it, it scares me to think how much I pay to have that car sit there. Huh. But I, I, I get nervous driving a car. I don't like it. I live in West Hollywood. I take the bus over the hill to the valley and ride through the valley. And then I ride home and, you know, I'm just loving it. Car free. Well, except I own a car. <laughs> good interview last week. It was really nice. Um, we're, we're talking about the in- interview with Emily Badger, who wrote, who writes for the New York Times. She had talked about how much online activity there was about the interview. So I went online and, and read a lot more about it. And it's really interesting to hear the different voices of the people who chime in. And, and you know, that just shows you the reach of the gray lady, that they get a lot of different voices. And some of the voices, I think, are so ignorant to the message you and I and Lindsay and Galen are all trying to get out there that I know The War on Cars is a great title, and I love the podcast, but what we're really fighting for is just a piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. And some people you know, don't even want to give that up. So people were actually saying, we don't care? No one actually says there's all these roadway deaths, we don't care. They sort of blame the victim. They blame cyclists. I think Emily even said, you know, people say you should wear a reflective vest or, you know, cyclists should wear a helmet or cyclists shouldn't be on the road, you know. And, and then, of course, someone then says cyclists shouldn't be on the sidewalk. And it's this age old anger at people who are choosing a different option. It was, so it was a good interview. I'm glad you did it. And it was a good article. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm, I'm looking more forward to more from her about this topic. So we'll, we'll see. Well, this week, we got some good stuff, too. We got an interview with Bikes, the organization in the Netherlands and India that's worldwide doing That's that's B-Y-C-S, correct? Yes. I think you also have something on on the bike strike, right? I don't know if people are aware on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, a lot of the UC, University of California, employees are striking. And on UCLA, they did a big bike strike, which was a great way to spread the word, I think. Yeah, we'll go to that one right now. One last thing before we wrap it up, Nick, is it's getting to be the holidays. Time to start thinking about what presents to get for your cyclist friends. And we'll talk about that, I think, in next week's show. Are you going to get me anything? (laughs) I already have. I better get something for you then. All right. This is the one from the UCLA bike strike. Great. I'm with Alejandra Rios and Nick Stewart-Block, grad students at UCLA, both TAs. Alejandra is studying urban planning and Latin American studies, and Nick is also in urban planning and focusing on transportation. I guess you're in the middle of, this is a big time. Yeah, it's a historic strike. I think it's the biggest strike this year, um, and it's the biggest academic worker strike in U.S. history. The academic workers went on strike throughout the all of the campuses uh, in California for the University of California. The UC was behaving um, illegally um, at the bargaining table when we were trying to um, come up with the next contract. So it's an unlawful labor practice strike, so ULP strike, and they've had something like over 20 And that's like the basis for why we're on strike. Um, But our demands are really to 
increase economic security for academic workers. Um, currently, the wages are very low, um, and there's many other fees if you're an international student, if you're a professional student. And so there's a whole like concert of demands, some transit demands. So you're focusing on transportation and urban planning. Tell me how the bike strike came about. I also focus on transportation. Um, so I, the idea came about, like, first, like we learned that Berkeley was also had just done a bike strike or um, a similar sort of um, tactic on their campus. And we thought, well, like we can do it here too. Um, a friend chatted with me about it and then I like passed it along and then we uh, created a group chat. We wanted to do this because it's a tactic that's different than just um, marching around at the picket line because with like bikes, we can move throughout the whole campus, not just in like strategic locations. In so we can reach places that it's a little harder for people who are walking to reach. Also, we do have some transportation demands. So we like found that link to this and the transportation demands are related to bikes, like because we, we wanted to focus more on like sustainable demands in transportation. So access to bus passes, like free bus passes for academic workers and also support in for paying for bikes and so that's kind of where that ties in yeah and uh to jump in yeah like we've won so far for academic student employees like yeah the free public transit passes at all campuses within two years of ratification 15 percent discounts on select e-bikes um and so it's very much like the bike strike is both partially in accordance with those demands and like ali said like it's a, just a very unique tactic we also very much see ourselves as part of like the broader like mobility justice movement and we take time uh when we stop to like discuss that what's going on in la which is like you know very uniquely dangerous place to be on wheels or a pedestrian um yeah so what was it like when you did it it was last tuesday right we did it for the first time about three weeks ago it went really well we had we've had people show up in all kinds of wheels uh we're pretty like welcoming to any types of wheels and we have people in skateboards and skates with heelys, uh, non-electric scooters um, and mm -hmm. even people in wheelchairs show up too. It was a lot of fun. Fundamentally a strike and what we're doing is like we're withholding our labor um, to show how valuable our labor is to the running of the UC system. But I think something like bike strike shows that like, I think it's both like a really fun time. It's very educational and like we, we're trying to connect it to like other things that are going on on campus and in LA and, and mobility justice. But yeah, we came up with like new chance. People were really jazzed about it. Like the first when we ended, we I think our like WhatsApp group for it, like probably like doubled at least it's had a really good turnout i think um, and it's definitely something we're going to continue if the strike goes into winter quarter um and it's something we'll keep as a weekly thing what is one of your chance <laughs> bike strike <laughs> <laughs> um and then we also have a chant that goes one day longer one day stronger and then we did like a version for us which is one mile longer one one day stronger. Sometimes it's one mile longer, one mile stronger. Um, again, with like going back to like mobility justice, we also did one and just like, like when I say mobility, you say justice because like both of us, we hear a lot about that kind of stuff. And we're finding that there's a lot of other folks across campus that also care about accessibility in LA, not just on campus, uh, in terms of other modes of transportation. Like one of the coolest part about the bike strike that with our picket lines are all kind of um, separated. Um, they're all 
near like our buildings and where we study or like what field of study we have. And so with this, um, we're kind of invite and we bring together uh, folks from all all of campus. So we have people in STEM, um, engineering and all the sciences come in. And then we've had people from more of the social sciences or the humanities also show up. And so it's been pretty nice um, in that sense. When you get to see everybody's bikes. Yes, that's a lot of fun. Will you connect with bike advocacy now more in Los Angeles? We've kind of reached out to like some of the local um, bike shops like Bikerwave and Bicycle Kitchen um, and like encourage people to go to Critical Mass and, and Ciclavia. And then we did have one person attend from the LA County, uh, a couple of people from the LA County Bike Coalition. Primarily, like our methods are to win the strike, but we also like want to see it as a venue to connect to other things going on in LA. When you hear about the chancellors voting themselves a 25% raise and the the head chancellor living, you know, making $640,000 while the TAs are having trouble paying rent and they're resisting your demands, the bike is sort of a humble symbol. I don't know. You don't picture the yeah. chancellor getting around on a bike. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, no, I, I really like that point because I think also we, we see like bikes and bikes have cropped up in social movements across the world is like they're kind of uniquely disruptive. You can move fast on them. And so we've seen them bikes like show up at like rallies and stuff to marshal. Um, it's both a really fun way to get around. And there's a lot of like strategic potential because you can do a lot with them as part of like protest tactics and strike. That's like something that we've been discussing lately, um, how we can just move beyond just doing the bike strike every week. How can folks who who are biking or who have a bike um, and are feel very comfortable on it help out in other situations? Um, because now we're trying to be more strategic. We as in the whole like strike movement. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us, the bike, uh, the biking group at UCLA to help out on that. There have already been, yeah, like bike marshals at rallies and marches. And so just kind of continuing those things, you know, we're planning to continue striking as long as it takes and until we get a fair contract because um, the UC has still been dragging. And so as these things develop, you know, you find new ways to kind of use your skills and energy, um, put it to different uses. This is sort of a connecting of mobility justice and economic justice. Mm, yeah. It all comes yeah. together. It, uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, this is more maybe tangential, but like, I think a lot of our economic demands center around rent burden. And like, I know in LA, I always talk with people and they're like, the weather's so good. I would totally walk or ride my bike if I could like, if it were safe to do so, if I could live close to where I work or study. And I think winning higher wages that allows people to not commute like 30 miles or something also gives them different options for how they get around. We definitely see them as, as linked for sure. I'm fortunate I live like close enough to campus I can bike, but that's definitely not true for everyone. Is there anything you can point us to to follow up on, on what you're doing? We can get back to you, especially as we start Bike Strike again. I think, yeah, there's a lot of different news sources covering us. LA Times, New York Times, um, Jacobin. So looking there, but we're going to like, especially as we continue to do bike strike, do a lot of like flyering and getting the word out about that too. Folks from the community are more than welcome to join us during the strike. Um, so if, yeah, if people want to come to one of the bike strikes or just like help out in any way, join a rally or join a picket line. Yeah, everybody's welcome to come in, in terms of like, how do we disseminate information? We're working on that right now. 
social media will be a good option, but for now we're, we're kind of just collecting emails um, or like a listserv to communicate everything about related to, to wheels, I guess, in the strike. Well, we'll definitely keep following it on Bike Talk. And thank you for your work yeah, and good you. luck. Thanks thank so you. much for having us. This is Bike Talk. That was Alejandro Rios and Nick Stewart-Block, organizers of the bike strike at UCLA. We go to Reed Middle School in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, to talk to Edwin and Ryan at the After School Bike Club, which is finishing up its first semester. Can you tell me how you found out about Bike Club? They gave lists of um, programs we want to join, and that's how I found out about Biking Club. This was one of the options that you were given for your after-school program, and can you say why you chose this one? Because I really like bikes, and I want to learn how to fix bikes. I like engineering a little bit, so when I realized that Biking Club deals a little bit with engineering and fisting things, and I chose Biking Club. What do you learn to do in the club? Like different parts of the bike, names, um, like fisting um, the bikes and removing some parts from it. Like the derailleur the, the that we, are, we were learning right now, the bike tire, index shifter, the paddle, yeah, and lots of different other parts. How does the class go? Like- so we come into class, we sit down, and then he starts talking about what we are going to do for the day, and then... We just do that. Oh, okay. And who's he? Gary. Um, Gary is actually the one who supervises us bike and club to um, tell us um, what to do and what we should not do. But he said um, that he's not actually a teacher, so. Uh, but he is, he is the one who was given in charge as bike and club to supervise us. He is a bike mechanic. He has a lot of experience about to bikes, so um, you'll be able to learn a lot of things from him. Do you ever bike to school, or where do you bike? I just ride around the parking lot and sometimes go to the skate park. The skate park is good to ride bikes? Yes, and also other things too. Scooters, skateboards, all that stuff. I just go to um, a park, um, which is in my elementary school. Um, They don't mind us going there. um, Me and my um, siblings and father sometimes go there to ride um, our bikes. How long would you say you've been riding a bike? For four years now. Um, for just a few months. So you just learned? Yeah. Did you learn in this class? Yes. Did Gary help you? Yeah, he helped me very much to learn how to ride a bike. So this class has been very important for you? Yeah. Or I should say club. Is it a club or a class? Oh, it's actually a club. And he doesn't want us to um, prefer to um, a school, so some things are a little bit different to the class. How do you like school at Reed Middle School? It is good. <laughs> I love all the teachers. They are very nice. I also like this school because I got to learn a lot of new stuff. Sometimes people say they point to the, the clubs at school as being a way that kids who maybe don't find much they're interested in during the day, they can find something that they like about school. But you like school anyway. Yeah. What did you learn how to do that you didn't know how to do before in bike club? I learned how to take off a tire. I didn't have the right tools, but Gary did give me the tools to take it off. Tire levers? Yeah. So how long does it take you now to take off a tire? About two minutes. Can you take off a tire in two minutes? More than two minutes. Okay. But you can do it? Yeah, I can. That's pretty cool. How about brakes? You know how to adjust brakes? Yes. How do you adjust a brake? You use a little twisty thing. <laughs> can you adjust a brake? Um, yeah. You can adjust the seat? Yes. Oh, not that much. I've seen Gary do it, but um, I don't know the name of the tool. 
but if maybe if you go to the tour and I uh, see why um, to do it, I can maybe I can do it. What else is there? Have you heard of truing a wheel? Yes. You adjust the spokes with a little tool. You know how to do that? Yes. Really? Yes. Well, we even did that last week. Oh, it, it seems it was Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. We did that on Tuesday. That oh. seems like an advanced thing to do. Yeah, I know. Uh, and now you're watching a video on how to do a derailleur. That is true. You're finally getting to derailers. We're kind of at the end of the semester, huh? Yeah. So this is like the highest level that you probably get to on a bike uh, this, this semester? Yeah. That derailleur is a... It's a funny bike part. What, what does it do? Can you describe uh, it? It helps um, bring up the chain when you um, do it on the, the okay. index shifter, yeah. It brings the chain up or down on how you, you, you move the shifter. Well, I gotta say, sounds like if this was an informal exam, I would give you a passing grade. Nice, thank you. How do you think taking this class will affect your life, bike club? Um, maybe if I don't have anything to do, I can start my, maybe my own bike shop, which I'm not that much interested in but maybe it can help me a little. What about just fixing your own bike? Yeah, if I can fix my old bike, maybe if it break down somewhere, I can fix it and just ride it again for fun. I would help the community fix their bikes. When would you do this? In like maybe five to 10 years. Is there a way to continue this? I, I mean, take it again? What's after the derailleur? I, I don't even, I, the, the hub, I've heard the hub is got bearings in it and it's got grease and it's really difficult. Yeah, it is kind of difficult because it is slippery. I have felt a lot of bearings before and I took apart my bike. I actually had to replace the bearing and I also took a bearing out of my scooter. Just to see what it was like? No, to fix it. Oh, so you're pretty mechanical. Yes. I should have asked that at the beginning. What's a bike joy? What's a time that you have really enjoyed yourself riding on a bike? It was the time that we had our first group ride. We all went um, outside into the woods, which um, actually Ryan was the group leader. You were the group leader? Yes. I actually have a really nice BMX bike. Oh, okay. So this was an unofficial ride? Yes. So you may have some bike leadership in your future then? Yes. All right, very cool. What's a, was that also your bike joy that you would point to? No, uh, me and my dad actually built these wooden jumps and I used to hit them all the time. But we moved and we don't have a yard anymore, so we can't do that. Well, maybe we can build them somewhere else. I heard there's a bike park at Springside right here. Yes, there is. I just don't know where it is. Maybe you'll visit it someday. It's very, very nearby. Anyway, Edwin, Ryan, very nice talking to you. You better get back to learning about derailers. Yeah, like it's very important for the bike. That was Ryan and Edwin, two students at Reed Middle School Bike Club in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Now, Luke Bornheimer and Heidi Moseson joined Stacy Randecker in a discussion of the opening of the Great Highway in San Francisco to people instead of cars on holidays and weekends. I'm on with Luke Bornheimer. He's a community organizer and he's on the board of Friends of Great Highway Park and Heidi Moseson, who's also on the board of Friends of Great Highway Park. I'm also with Stacy Randecker, who's a Safe Streets activist in San Francisco. And we're all going to talk about the Great Highway Park and how it's permanently car-free now for parts of the week. This week, um, in a historic and pretty profound vote, our board of supervisors in a vote of nine to two codified Great Highway Park as open to people Fridays at 12 p.m. to Mondays at 6 a.m. every weekend, also every holiday throughout the year. Um, and that is until December 31st, 2025, 
at which point San Francisco city agencies will make a recommendation on the future of the Great Highway, what the city should do with it going forward. And you've been working on this for a while. Yeah, been doing organizing and advocacy around this space for almost two years now. It's really great to see this coming to fruition. And we are you know, really grateful to the local supervisor of the district, Gordon Marr, who created this legislation and really pushed this vote forward to have it done before the end of the year. And this comes right on the heels of uh, Prop J, which kept JFK Drive car-free. Yeah, that vote, Proposition J, made uh, car-free JFK promenade permanent um, and codified it by the voters. Um, And then simultaneously, Proposition I actually threatened to eliminate Great Highway Park and would have required the city to allow private automobile traffic on the Upper Great Highway 24-7. And voters overwhelmingly rejected that, uh, 65% to 35%, actually a, a greater margin than Proposition J passed by. So a full 30%, including every single one of the 11 supervisorial districts in San Francisco. What was it before? If it's open on weekends and holidays now, Heidi, you can take that if you want. I'm also happy to go through all of the nitty gritty of it all. So I actually live on the Great Highway. And prior to April of 2020, it was a full-time road used by cars. It's a 35 mile an hour speed limit, but cars tended to go 50, 55 miles an hour or more down it. There's no outlets from the road into the neighborhood for cars. Heidi, if you wouldn't mind painting the picture of where this line of asphalt is and why there are no turns off of it. Yes. The Great Highway is a stretch of road along San Francisco's westernmost point. It goes along what we call Ocean Beach, the Pacific Ocean, where it touches the San Francisco Peninsula. And it's divided into several stretches. And there's traffic lights, but there are no roads, no way to exit in your car. And the lights are timed to be 35 miles an hour, but cars tend to go much, much faster than that. Um, and tend not to stop um, often, run through red lights because there is no cross vehicle traffic. And so in April, 2020, when we were all locking down, sheltering in place for the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, local supervisor, Gordon Marr, asked the city to keep the road closed. It was already closed due to sand coverage on the road, which happens all the time. The road is adjacent to these large, beautiful dunes along Ocean Beach. And when it's windy, sand and the dunes literally move onto the road, blocking car traffic. Bikes and people can still navigate around them. But the road was already closed due to sand coverage on the road. And so they said, hey, can you just keep the road closed so that people have a safe place for, you know, being outside, getting exercise, recreating while maintaining the social distance that we need to maintain for the pandemic? People loved it. Over time, I mean, immediately people loved it. And pretty quickly, some local um, neighbors out here, like myself, realized we should keep this. Whatever happens with this pandemic, back then we thought it would last three weeks. People started organizing and seeing the way it transformed the space. But then in August of 2021, there was some city politics that happened and the, the road was reopened to cars Monday to Friday at noon. That's when we entered this weekend versus week split, which we continue to be in and will be at least until 2025, we think. The reason they gave for closing it at that point is the kids are going back to school. And so who's going to use this thing? It was very irksome that that was part of their justification for reopening it to cars. This part of the city, the neighborhoods that are there, they actually used to be sand dunes. The beach stretched very far into San Francisco proper, and it was 
swept away. So it's really mother nature just doing what she's always wanted to do um, and making San Francisco the way it used to be. And I'm not saying we need to go back to that. We need a lot of housing. Do we really need it for cars? No, we don't. Oftentimes, when cities are thinking about repurposing public space and creating more space for people, oftentimes, or for safe bike infrastructure, oftentimes uh, on-street parking is an issue. And in fact, on Upper Grade Highway, there is there's actually zero parking. There's not even kind of a shoulder for cars to stop on. So that's actually not, not a concern here at all. After the pandemic, when it was totally car-free? For the whole yes. week? April 2020 until August of 2021, uh, it was a 24-7 park open to people. Two miles in full length, probably about 50 feet of asphalt wide. And then it was just weekends car free. Since August 2021, Fridays at 12 noon until Mondays at 6 a.m. plus holidays, it is a park for people. That, again, will stay in place until you know, at the very latest, December 31st of 2025. But anytime before then, the city could make it a 24-7 park. That's our hope. We don't really want to wait until December 31st, 2025. We want to see it be a park sooner. And when we think that's totally within reason, and, and yeah, we'd love to see and help make the city make that happen. So maybe the city is gauging the politics. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this comes down to a few things. You know, there, there's just a fear of change. You know, people are used to how life has always operated. And there are certain people in our city who have driven on this road for a while. So that change is painful for them. And so they're resisting that change. Change is a, is a fact of life, and especially in a world of you know, the climate crisis, traffic safety crisis, you know, we need to ultimately change. Otherwise, the world will force that change on us. More innocent people will die on our streets. That's one of the challenges. Another challenge, as you alluded to, is political will. You know, just having elected officials in our city who say, you know, this is a good thing and we can make a brand new 17-acre world-renowned oceanfront park with this space. And that's an, an amazing opportunity. So we need political will there. Finally, you know, there's just a matter of helping people get around our city more safely and sustainably. We are very invested in, in doing that and making sure that people can get alongside Great Highway Park, um, whether they choose to walk, bike, take public transportation, or if they choose or need to drive. Stacy, do you live near Great Highway Park? You call it Great Walkway. I call it the Great Walkway because I don't really wish to dignify it with its original use. Um, I like that people can bike and so many people have learned to ride a bike on um, because of this great stretch of asphalt alongside the beach. Um, but I actually live the absolute opposite end of the city and I'm itching for something on my side of town um, that might resemble um, this absolute gem um, by the ocean. The When you are out there and you see the people that are making use of the space uh, when it is close to cars, you just wonder what on earth were we thinking putting cars here by the beach? It just seems so silly. You see the kids learning to ride or the older people being able to do so without stress. People um, in wheelchairs um, that are able to take make use of the space. It's unlike anything else. Uh, we need more of it. It's interesting how many places have highways by their water. Yeah, we kind of have to put an end to that. I love that there are people that have risen up to 
you know, take this space back from cars and give it to people to recreate. And actually it's transportation. Uh, that's the thing that people miss. They think that people on bikes, that they're just playing. And it's like, nope, that's how many of us get around. We need more people that are able to, to do this and stretches, long stretches like this by the water in so many places would make it easier to do so. That's like exactly my story. I have two kids, used to drive them everywhere by car because I'm not a super, com- or wasn't a super confident biker. But having this space, long stretch of road closed to cars for the first time, we, like many other people, tried an e-bike and it felt safe having our kids on the back of it biking them to preschool, those sorts of things. And then with the network of slow streets, that has just expanded. Our confidence has grown. And now we literally replaced a car with an e-bike and we're a bike commuting family, which only happened because there was this like safe stretch of road without cars. So it absolutely is transportation on top of recreation and so much more. So you just started bike commuting? I mean, now it's been almost two years, but yeah. And you've just become a bike advocate. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like putting your kids on a bike and driving and biking down a road with cars on it to make you realize, oh, this is, this is not okay. This is, this paint on the road does absolutely zero to (laughs) protect me or my kids from cars that are doing whatever, you know, I'm a, I'm a driver too, not to like paint people who drive cars as, you know, anything wrong, just that they're operating in a different environment. When you're driving a car, you aren't maintaining the same attention that you have to maintain. And you're not as vulnerable as when you are, when you are on a bike, when you have your kids on a bike with no metal around them. It's often said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Exactly. When people are, as you say, Luke, resisting necessary change, you know, the things they come up with, it all amounts to, you shouldn't really have equal access. You really should have to have a car to get around. I try to empathize as much as possible Um, especially in my organizing and advocacy work. And, you know, I I can understand when someone has lived almost, you know, their entire life driving around. And so, you know, we face a number of scary, troubling crises and, and it requires us to change and change is really scary. And so like, I understand why it's scary for people. And, and that's ultimately why in, in moments of crisis, right. You need leaders to step up and say, this is what we're going to do to to move forward. And we're going to make sure that everyone is helped towards, you know, making this positive change. Um, And, you know, unfortunately right now, I think across the country, but oftentimes in San Francisco, we we lack that that leadership. Um, And that's why, you know, Heidi and I and, and friends of Great Highway Park are so appreciative of Supervisor Marr for his leadership on this legislation. And then the eight colleagues of his that, that joined him in voting nine to two for this legislation. You know, we're starting to see some of these seas turn um, uh, towards where we need to be. But, you know, we, we need leaders in our city and in our country who will empathize with people and say, yes, this is scary and we need to move forward and we need to do this for our kids and for our planet and for, you know, our seniors and people with disabilities who who get hit by cars and die, you know, these are necessary changes, but we can do them in a way that's empathetic and and moves our world forward in a positive way. I totally agree, Luke. And I think that what you said, Nick, that you can't unsee it. It's like, we need to be handing out, I guess it's the red pill. 
I don't know. I can't remember if it was the red pill or the it's blue pill. The red pill, yeah. And I think to that point, like there's a failure of the imagination. People who have only thought of roads as for cars, when you say, hey, we're going to restrict cars on this road now, all they see is an empty road. It's like there's this failure of the imagination to see what else could be there. But if you spend time on Great Highway Park or really in any of these newly created car light spaces, there's yoga classes, Tai Chi classes, blind runners groups, glow rides sidewalk art contests, hot chocolate story times. Like it's this explosion of humanity coming up with things that are like, there's new events all the time, community cleanups. There's so much that's possible. It's not just the absence of something. It's there's so much created there. And I think that's what we as advocates need to do to help bring people along with these changes. Thank you, Luke and Heidi and Stacy. Keep it up. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, Stacy, and thanks, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, thanks all. That was Luke Bornheimer, Heidi Moseson, and Stacy Randecker on the San Francisco Great Highway opening to people instead of cars on the weekends and holidays. Next, a song by John Elliott, one of the Great Highway Park supporters. Keep the park safe for everyone to get outside and get some sun to see their friends and see some trees so keep it slow and easy please cars are magic cars are quick sometimes a car is just the trick to get to where you have to get in style but kids can't drive and don't have cars and some adults also don't have cars or sometimes choose another way to navigate the town now it's all good and it's all great it's all love there's no room for hate we all have to get along and move around so share the streets and share the road Keep it clean and keep it slow Keep it cool and keep it fun Keep the park safe for everyone And keep it car free so the kids can play Car free to scoot and skate and ride Car free so we all can have a place To safely move outside Car free for a hundred years Car free for a hundred more For you and me, for them and they So everyone can get from A to B Highway, keep it car free. From JFK to the Great Highway, keep it car free. From JFK to the Great Highway, keep it car free. That was Keep It Car Free by Friend of the Great Highway Park. John Elliott. Now, Lucas Snage, Research and Advocacy Manager of Bikes, an Amsterdam-based global NGO supporting community-led urban change through cycling. 
What is Bikes, Lucas? Pleasure to be here uh, and thanks for having me. Bikes is a small international NGO based in Amsterdam. We also have a small office in Bengaluru, India. And our mission is essentially to support, amplify and nurture community-led urban change through cycling. And so we act as a bridge between what is happening at the grassroots level with activists, community groups, NGOs, and then larger, more institutional kind of global organizations like UN agencies, governments, uh, larger kind of philanthropic partners, etc. Our vision is to develop a range of programs that strengthen inclusive cycling cultures. And so whether that's behavioral change programs focused on children or women or caregivers or just advocacy activities that are trying to position the bicycle as kind of a tool for social transformation and kind of a way to combat um, big urban kind of crises such as climate change and health. Uh, we really kind of have this global coordination capacity that allows us to be um, kind of a voice in many different spaces. We really try to push kind of the narrative of the importance of cycling for uh, urban mobility. It sounds like a pretty big organization. It's funny because we're actually very small uh, and the we're about nine people in the Netherlands and uh, a couple of people in India uh, with one kind of key staff member there. Uh, but the way that we are able to connect to so many different initiatives is through networks. We have kind of this vision that if we open up a space for constellations of partners to work together, coordination of civil society activities and activists and, and, and kind of organizers, we can actually have a much uh, bigger voice if that voice is united or at least representing uh, the voice of, of stakeholders uh, around the world. So a lot of the work we do is more in the kind of concepting and we do a bit of research and program development. But then let's say when we work on an initiative at the global scale, we'll always have uh, local partners um, doing the implementation. And so to give you an example, we've been carrying out an initiative um, with the support of a foundation called the Bernard Van Leer Foundation this year uh, on enabling women caregivers to access um, and gain the skills to, to start cycling, to, to be empowered by, by cycling. And for that, it's not our team doing the work on the ground. We have a partner in Mexico City, Bicitecas, which is a really kind of uh, a, a valued uh, community organization that's been doing work for decades there. In India, we work with uh, a campaigning agency called Purpose Climate Lab. And in Turkey and Istanbul, we work with a activist organization called Chain Breaking Women. And so by having these networks, we're able to kind of like mobilize and leverage uh, the local expertise and experience of people on the ground, which in our opinion, um, actually adds way more value than just us being this kind of international NGO, essentially kind of going around the world and, and implementing programs. Uh, rather, we, we kind of really try to create the conditions for different organizations working at the grassroots to kind of just do these programs at a larger scale, learn from us, learn from each other, and then kind of just keep doing the good work that they're doing. It's a lot that's going on there. So you're keeping track of all these different initiatives? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the, the main role of different kind of project managers in the team. Uh, we obviously have kind of frequent contact with our partners, but we work a lot with these kind of partner consortiums uh, that enable us to have this kind of global reach. And, and then when we have certain programs that work well, uh, we can kind of adapt them to context. And so another example of a program that we've been doing this year is an initiative called Bicycle Heroes. For the past four years, we, we've been doing this program in, in a variety of Dutch cities like you know Amsterdam, The Hague, 
different areas around the Netherlands, uh, like the province of Gelderland. And then that's where we go into schools and we try to engage with youth, essentially, between eight to 12 years old, bring awareness about the benefits of cycling and how cycling can be empowering, and also hear about their ideas and their perspectives on making cycling more comfortable uh, and safer in their community. And, and, and that really integrates the voice of children in decision making. And so we did that for four years. Uh, it worked well. And then with the support of the uh, European Institute for uh, Innovation and Technology, which is kind of essentially supported by the EU Commission, we brought that program to Dublin, Lisbon and Rome this year. And so that's an example of scaling a program but then working with local partners in each city, we're working with local partners and then they are essentially carrying out this initiative uh, with support from us, with some financial support from us as well. And that just kind of enables us to grow the pie and then uh, bring in more local uh, groups into, into the fold of our work and our mission. And, and, and often, you know, uh, these are, are, are organizations that have been working on cycling in their communities for a long time. So they're able to really have a good impact uh, in their communities. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing the deep healing work. Um, <laughs> so one thing that you're most known for is your bicycle mayors program. The bicycle mayor program is, is a really interesting development for organizations. I think has had a huge role to play in, in kind of the, the core approach that we take. The Bicycle Mayor program was started in Amsterdam in 2017 with just this desire to have a representative from civil society be able to kind of communicate uh, the needs of the community to decision makers and kind of other stakeholders at the city level. You know, this is a role that is voluntary. It is non-government affiliated. It is really just having essentially a figurehead that can represent the needs of the cycling community in a kind of a more cohesive and strategic way. Um, and when we did that in, in the Netherlands, it, there kind of a lot of noise uh, kind of was generated. And suddenly we started getting uh, outreach from communities around the world uh, saying, look, we, we we also feel the need to have a bicycle mayor in, in our community to kind of represent the interests and elevate the needs of, of the cycling community. Um, to this day now, you know, we have a working relationship with more than 140 individuals in over 40 countries that are also representatives of their cycling community. They are working with us and through this network um, on a voluntary basis. But we've seen that um, in some instances, it can really open doors uh, when you have this affiliation to a, a global network. Uh, we also have working groups. It generates international solidarity between activists. You know, when you're fighting in the day-to-day -day in your community, advocating for bike lanes, asking for better budgets, uh, trying to train uh, women uh, how to cycle, it can feel really intense. And actually having a connection and being able to share learnings with people from around the world that might have similar experiences has a really kind of intangible value to it and actually really builds solidarity. So that's that's a really wonderful program. Are you looking for bike mayors? Should people apply from everywhere or is it only particular places? Yeah, it's a good question. We kind of have this kind of dual approach to this. Uh, we have certain regions that our organization kind of is focusing on specifically. And so India has obviously been a region that has been very important to us. And, and we opened up an office there and we have kind of foundation there. Uh, Latin America is also a region that has been growing a lot uh, uh, alongside Europe, obviously, because of, of geographic proximity. And so for some of those geographies, you know, if we don't have a bicycle mayor in, in kind of a really key city, then we'll approach an organization locally and say, look, uh, I think this could be uh, really interesting to run a campaign to try and identify someone. And then we have more of this kind of deliberate approach. 
We also get a lot of applications through our website. And, and, and for that, we have kind of this review process with an endorsement letter uh, system and, and, and kind of that kind of uh, inbound approach. But now what we've also started doing is really working with a local partner to run a campaign uh, and we'll have a local jury. And that enables the person that is selected to be the most representative uh, of the needs of that particular city. It's kind of like being a Miss America. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting comparison. But yes, essentially, I mean, there is that kind of figurehead status. But then what we do is then we build capacity. We have kind of network calls, specific working groups, things like that. You know, what we've also started doing through our programs is opening up opportunities for funding redistribution and kind of a more formal relationship with us. So quite a few of the projects that we're doing at the international level, the door that we have into the city is through this network. And so often the representatives of, of the network in, in a specific city are already members of the local bicycle coalition or a local NGO. And so that enables us to then already have a point of contact. And we can say, look, we have uh, a grant that we think, um, you know, based on your past work would be would be really uh, relevant to involve you in, uh, let's say, on creating a community bike share system or a bike library. Um, would you be interested in, in being the local implementer of this? And we can redistribute X amount of funds for this to happen. And then from that, we'll also connect you with the other organizations that are working in the other cities and will generate, let's say, a, a knowledge for policy report or something at the outcome of, of that grant. And that's really kind of a model that we see as an interesting way forward because there is a need for you know redistribution of, of funding to local uh, advocacy groups and and often that 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 amount is is not very large but it's just it enables them to develop their work increase their capacity their scope and by positioning ourselves as more of kind of a coordinator potentially a microfinancer and then an aggregator of all of that knowledge and then a communication at the global level uh, partner of that knowledge we think that it's quite an interesting way forward so Lucas, it sounds like you're involved in so many things and trying so many things and you're seeing what works. A lot of people are frustrated at the pace of change when it comes to streets and infrastructure and safe places to bike and walk. We're wondering what's going to move the needle the farthest, the fastest, and what is the needle anyway? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, the, and, and the frustration is, is definitely also felt by kind of our community and, and, and our team. If you look at the highest level of decision making, the, you know, recent also climate conference in Egypt, the transport conversation is still dominated by private vehicle electrification and the positioning of active travel. So walking and cycling in combination with public transport is, is often left in the wake of these kind of more techno solutionist uh, approaches and kind of approaches that actually don't really solve challenges of road safety and public space and inclusivity and kind of just urban well-being. And so, you know, we see the need to have strong work done at the policy level, the kind of policies at the city level, at the national level, at the kind of international level need to change and really center walking and cycling and public transport as a solution to not only the, the kind of climate crisis, but also in the promotion of uh, better urban health, be it physical or mental, uh, economic access and opportunity and more kind of inclusive public spaces. We also see the need for the role of civil society to be, to be, to be grown. I think that the power of activists and civil society in bringing about urban change is massive. And, and that goes beyond just the kind of mobility conversation. Um, but, you know, obviously being an organization that is based in Amsterdam, 
the changes that Amsterdam has undergone in the last kind of five decades were precisely because of a strong voice from civil society uh, coupled with the right political will. And, and I think a lot of cities are at this kind of junction where they really need to embrace fully uh, better cycling infrastructure, but also better programs to enable people to start cycling, urban space redesign, and all of these kind of items that we know are solutions in our toolkits. Uh, but it's really a question of recognizing them and prioritizing them. So the needle, I think, um, there are several needles, essentially. I think the advocates of this world need to continue pushing and also start talking more with other stakeholders that are, um, you know, fighting the good fight um, at other levels. And so I think if we can be better aligned in our discussion points and in our advocacy at all levels, then things can accelerate. And I think we're starting to see this with better integration of civil society, NGOs, with more institutional partners. And I think if we can get that coalition going, the speed of change and the mobility behaviors and the environment of our cities can change for the better. Thank you, Lucas Snage. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Lucas Snage, Research and Advocacy Manager at Bikes. Now to an archived episode of WMBR's Bike Talk with Galen Mook. Galen talks with members of the Boston Cyclist Union and the Bike to the Sea organization on how access to bikes during the shutdown of Boston's Orange Line last September got new people bike commuting. All right, welcome to Bike Talk about the Orange Line shutdown crisis that snarled the streets of Boston. And so the bike advocates had to save the day. We have with us another starred guest. We have Alex Shames, the community organizer with the Boston Cyclist Union. Hey, Alex, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, Galen. So let's set the stage here. We've been talking a little bit about how we are kind of in a status of public transit in Boston, which is decrepit, failing, literally catching on fire. People are leaping from trains into the river. And that is not a hyperbole. That is literally happening. But I don't want to be too down about it because that affords us the opportunity to think about how people are going to get around on a day to day in real life. And we saw that one of the modes which upticked was people choosing to ride bikes to get to and from their daily commute. So Alex, can you just talk a little bit about, first off, the Boston Cyclist Union, feel free to give a plug, and how you got engaged into the conversation around how advocates, and specifically bike advocates, can really help be a pressure valve for a failing transit system. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, the Boston Cyclist Union, we're a community organization here in Boston. We are working to make sure that everyone in the city can feel safe and feel like they have access to walk out of their house and get on a bicycle and go anywhere else in the city and feel safe, feel free, and do so in a way that's fun and enjoyable. It should be an option that everyone has. And so yeah, mid-August and mid-September, we heard the Orange Line was shutting down, and it was shutting down in about two weeks, so love having all that time to prepare. But our immediate thought was, okay, thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, are gonna need a way to get to work. The shuttles are notoriously very, very bad, and some people are going to be turning to biking. And our immediate thought was both provide ways for people to access biking easier, whether that's providing free bike repair so that if people have to dig out their bike out of the basement that they haven't used in 20 years, they can feel safe using it or help get people blue bikes passes, or using the resource we have, which is a network of super experienced people who bike to provide learning opportunities and safe spaces for people to get on a bike for the first time and ride in a group or test out the new route they have to take to get to their job. Those were kind of the two prongs we had, get people access to bikes, working bikes, and help people feel comfortable on the road. 
Cool. So you mentioned that you had a very short notice of this orange line shutting down. I'm curious, how did that go behind the scenes in terms of what did the BCU, the Boston Cyclist Union, have to do in order to get ready for this? Yeah. So the first thing we wanted to do is make sure everyone in the base of our organization, people who follow us on social media, our email lists, knew what was going on and find a way for them to express how they could help out as easily as possible. So we made a Google form that was like, check all the ways you'd be interested in helping out, like leading a group ride, like leading a daily convoy, teaching bike repair. So we spread that Google form out on all social media, on our email list. And then we reached out to the people who filled it out and said, hey, you said you'd be really interested in leading a practice ride on Sunday. Let's do that. And we had an incredible group of people leading those rides and we had people leading convoys. So yeah, the first step was get all the people in our base to let us know how they can help. Cool. I also want to introduce, now that we have a new guest here, we have Jonah from the Bike to the Sea organization, the executive director there. Jonah, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining myself and Mixmaster Molly. We're talking about the Orange Line shutdown. We're talking about how community organizations responded. So I'm actually going to pass this to you for a second, Jonah. So can you explain to our audience what Bike to the Sea is as an organization and how you responded holistically to the transit crisis, which was the Orange Line shutdown? Yeah, for sure. So we already are the stewards of this great rail trail, the Northern Strand Community Trail, Northern Strand Trail now. And that provides a great route to destinations where the orange line takes people. And so the goal was to make sure people were aware at the very least of this route, because folks who commute by bike or don't commute by bike, but maybe are curious about it, may not be aware of this as a good off-street, low-stress route. And the connections to it are continuously being made better. And so as Alex suggested, we reached out to our constituents and said, hey, especially folks up north here in this area, would you be interested in helping to organize rides to show people this kind of circuitous set of routes to get to the Northern Strand path and then safely into Boston or Cambridge or whatever your final destination was. And so I think we had five people from our Bike to the Sea membership which may well overlap with Boston Cyclist Union membership that participated in those and were available on a regular schedule, just show up and follow this person in. And I think that's the type of thing that kind of like the stars align, right? You have this sort of unfortunate situation and there's an opportunity to capitalize on people who may have been looking for something to kind of push them into trying out bike commuting. You know, the timing was great. The weather was great. And I thought it was also great working with the Boston Cyclist Union and MassDOT and the other stakeholders that were on a bunch of kind of emergency war room calls for several weeks to kind of figure out how and what to do and then do it. One of the great things that came out of that project was attention to significant gaps in the quality of the low stress network that connects the existing terminus of the trail to the final destinations. And it's great to have a bunch of expressway grade flex posts that have endured really well Mm. on that corridor, both outbound and inbound. That's the kind of small but significant gap closure that is cheap and easy to do and shouldn't take a crisis like a month-long orange line shutdown, if that's how we can scrape together some of these gap closures, we're all for it. Yeah, it's those key intersections, right? A bike lane is great, but when it comes into a place where it crosses another road, that's really where the rubber hits the road. I just want to go back to something because I know what you mean when you say it was the perfect timing. It was the worst timing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Orange line, a big part of the green line, coming into Labor Day, return to the office, V3.0, right, during the pandemic, students coming back to town. But it was maximum disruption, and that's what made it so perfect because people were really looking for alternatives. And if you think about the research coming out of Portland State University around the four types of cyclists, 
60% of people in a metro area are interested but concerned to ride. They're concerned about safety, and that means infrastructure and a safe bike, to Alex's point. But the buddy system helps. And getting people out to see that these things exist, this infrastructure exists. And once this becomes a viable transportation network and not just piecemeal projects, really, this is a game changer in terms of what I think we can expect in terms of people on bicycles. And so grateful for the work that you guys are both doing. Thanks for coming in today to talk about it. That was an excerpt from an archived episode of WMBR's Bike Talk with Galen Mook on commuting by bike during the Orange Line shutdown in Boston last September. And that was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Just a bike. Oh, just a bike.